I hope that you've had a good day. I've had a pleasant day spending some time with some of the men of the congregation chasing a little white ball. We would meet periodically at different places and be scattered part of the time. But we've had an enjoyable day. That accounts for the red faces of some of us. We are ashamed of how we did. (laughs) But we've had a good day, and I hope that you have. I neglected to mention something yesterday. I don't want to forget it tonight. But I want to thank all that had a part in the meal yesterday and in the good meal we had tonight. Both cases, someone asked me after we had finished eating, did I get enough? And of course I did. Don't I look like somebody that would get enough? But I did, and if I didn't, it was my fault. And it was all good, and I appreciate what you're doing, the effort you're putting forth in the meal, your prayers for this meeting, your invitations extended to others, anything and everything that you are doing to uh, help this meeting. I appreciate it. appreciate all of you that are here tonight. I appreciate all the members of this congregation that are present. I know that you're expected to be here, but you're still here. You made the conscious choice to be here tonight, and I appreciate the fact that you do that. And uh, sometimes because we think about those who are absent, and we study about and meditate how we can best influence them to repent and remold their lives, we forget about those who are always there. And I appreciate those of you that are present tonight that are members here. We have a number of visitors and appreciate each of you that are here. Uh, Brother Paul Sane has been a dear, dear friend. A man that preaches can't have a better friend than Paul Sane. And he's been a great encouragement to me and a dear, dear friend and someone that I love. Brother and Sister Boyd are here tonight. When we first moved to McMinnville in 1991, he befriended me and has been a dear, dear friend to me ever since. And I appreciate him. And he always is encouraging to me uh, in in the efforts that I put forth, and I'm grateful to him for that. Uh, There are members here from other congregations where I've held meetings, and I appreciate you being here. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, in verse 9, the writer says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The grace of God is an essential and important subject. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. That goes on to say some more things, but that's what we want to think about there for just a moment. It's universal. Hebrews 2.9 says that. Titus 2.11 expresses the universal aspect of the grace of God. It is something that is available to every single person. The reason for that is because every single person needs the grace of God because of our sin. Because God loves us so much and cares about us so much, He has made it possible and made provision for us to be able to have the forgiveness of our sins. But now the grace of God is either going to save every single person or else there are some conditions that are attached to the grace of God. 
And of course, we well know that the Bible shows and teaches that every single person is not going to be saved, are they? It's not because God doesn't want them to be, but because of God's holy character in His love and goodness and kindness, but also in His justice and His wrath, everybody is not going to be saved, though it breaks the heart of God for it to be that way. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, Say unto the wicked, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't enjoy that. But God's holy character is such that He would be compromised in that character if He did not judge and condemn sin. And so, some people are going to be lost. There are some who are going through that broad gate and on that wide way that leads to destruction. Jesus said, many are going therein. In contrast to the few who go in at the straight gate in the narrow way, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. In that great judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31 through 46, there are some who will be on the right, designated as sheep, but there are also some who are going to be on the left, designated as the goats. And there's a separation that will take place. And those on the left are going to be lost. Breaks our heart to think about that. But it is nonetheless a truth that cannot be contradicted. Grace, though universally available, is conditional. Therefore, there are some things that we must do in order to have the grace of God. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access into this grace wherein ye stand. Paul pictures grace as being something like a room into which you could enter by a door. The door is Jesus Christ. But you have to be in that grace in order for that grace to avail. And because of that then, there are conditions that we must meet in order to have that grace. But I want you to think with me in a little different way tonight. Not so much thinking about the things we must do in order to be saved. To believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. To repent of our sins confess our faith in Jesus and to be baptized for the remission of our sins and to live faithfully thereafter. I rather want you to think with me tonight about some things that we must do from the standpoint of things that we will do sooner or later. We must do them. Because God has created us in His image, Genesis 1:26 and other passages, we are created in the image of God in the sense that God is a being of emotion. God has created us with emotion. The capacity to feel anger, the capacity to feel joy, the capacity to feel love, sorrow, all of the emotions that we can feel, God feels. We're created in His image. God has created us with a soul, and though our soul is not eternal in the same sense that God is. Psalms 90 and verse 2, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God always has been, 
Never been a time when God has not been. He is. He is the great I am. But you and I are eternal in the sense that having been created, we will never cease to be somewhere eternal. In the 25th chapter of Matthew again, in the judgment scene, verses 31 to 46, verse 46, these shall go away into eternal or everlasting life. The other shall go away unto eternal damnation. Everlasting and eternal. They're from the same word. We'll always be somewhere. We are eternal. We have a soul. A spiritual aspect of ourselves. That is who and what we are. But we also have a volition, a will. God has created us and given us the capacity to will, to act, Even though when God created man in his image with that volition, he knew that we might exercise that contrary to his own will. He created us in his image nonetheless. He did not create us and program us to behave in a way that he would always want, but rather he created us so that we would, out of our love and devotion and appreciation of God, respond to do his will. And yet, he knew that many would not. And yet he created us anyway. There are a lot of questions that I don't know all of the answers to and understand all that I know some of the answers to. Sometimes when people ask me, why would God create Adam and Eve, knowing mankind would flow out of them and that the vast majority of people would be lost? I, I can't answer all that's involved in that. But sometimes I ask people, why do we have children? When we know they can be hurt. We know they may grow up and rebel. We know they could be accidentally injured, even taken out of this life. Why do we choose to have children? Because we want to love them and bless them. We want an object upon which we can shower our love. And while people have all kinds of pets, and that's well and good, it's not the same, is it? We have children when we can, where we can. And God did that. He wanted something in his own image upon which he could bestow his love. But he wanted us to be able to respond to that willingly and freely. And so we have a volition. Now, in the exercise of that will, that volition, there are some things that we must do. And if I don't do them now on this side of eternity, I'm going to do them at the day of judgment. But then it will be too late. Have you ever thought about that? There are some things that people must do, and they will do them. It is simply a question of, will we do them now? while they can bless our life and bring us into the good pleasure of God, or will we wait and do them at the day of judgment when it will be too late? For instance, your Bible says that we must believe. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
Because God has created us with a will, a mind, sometimes people exercise that will, that mind and their will. They exercise their reason to reject God. Didn't Paul deal with that in Romans chapter 1? They are without excuse, he said, because they had the knowledge of God, but they rejected God. They turned and worshipped the creature rather than the creator, he would say. In spite of all of the evidence that was available to them, man perverted himself and turned away from God to worship creation. There are people today that are doing the very same thing, aren't there? Think of the vast multitude of people there are that are so brazen as to deny the existence of God. And that is in spite of all the evidence that is available Not a single known scientific fact contradicts anything in the Bible. A lot of suppositions of men that rely upon so-called science, but none of those things are definitely established and proven scientifically. And yet, there are those who brazenly affirm, there is no God, there is no life hereafter. When we die, we're all like Rover, we're dead all over, and that's it. No wonder we're living like animals, morally speaking, in our world today. Why shouldn't we if there is no God? Friends, if there is no God, there is no basis for morality. Why is it wrong to murder? Only because there is a God who established the sanctity of life. Why is it wrong for me to come into your home and seeing something I like, just pick it up and leave with it if I want to, if I think I'm big enough and strong enough? Because God, who established right and wrong, said it's not right to steal. I don't have that right. You see, without God, we don't have any real basis for morality. We must believe that He is. More than that, we've got to believe something about the character of God. It pains me to see how God's character is perverted today. You've seen those caricature pictures. I remember my mother-in-law and father-in-law who used to travel a little bit in their retirement years. And they had a picture that they had sat for and, and someone had drawn that caricature, caricature of a little plane and their big bodies and heads in that plane, you see. And that's the picture and image a lot of people have of God, isn't it? The love of God is so emphasized, and well, it should be, but not to the, to the neglect of the justice of God. All of the characteristics of God complement one another and don't contradict. We've got to believe not only that God is, but that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we must believe, Jesus said in John 8 and 24, speaking to the Jews, except you believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Yes, we must believe. But a lot of people don't. But you know one day they will. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, He cometh with the cloud, and every eye shall see Him, and they that pierced Him, And all of the kingdoms of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. All of those today who scoff and mock the existence of God, who scoff and mock Jesus as the Son and the Savior of the world, when 
He returns, all of us will see Him. And friends, there won't be any mocking or scoffing then. Everybody's going to believe then. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. There will be no unbelievers on the day of judgment. There will be no unbelievers in hell. Oh, they were unbelievers in life. They will go to the judgment as unbelievers, but when they leave the judgment and go to their eternal abode, they will not be unbelievers then. But the tragedy is it will be too late then for that faith, that belief to avail anything. Do you believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the God of the Bible and not the perverted caricature that society has painted and presented of God? Yes, we must believe. And we will one day. Let's not wait until it's too late. But not only do we have to believe, the Bible teaches that we have to confess. Now, if we will be saved, confession is a part of the scheme of redemption for the alien sinner. Paul said that if you would believe in your heart, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Unto means in the direction of, toward that end or that aim. And so there is the essentiality of making that confession of our faith in Jesus. It is also essential that we confess our sins. 1 John 1 in verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, notice the conditional clause there, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is faithful and God is just. And so one of the characteristics of the Christian life is confession. 1 John 1 verse 7. We're going to talk about this some more, Lord willing, on Wednesday night when we talk about the second law of pardon. But a part of the Christian life involves a confession of our sins. And the word confess means to say the same thing as another. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying the same thing about Him that the Father says. Twice from Scripture He is shown as saying from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Matthew 3 and Matthew 17. At His baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we make a confession, no formula of words specifically is required, simply the expression of the sentiment, the conviction of our heart. But when we make that confession, we're saying the same thing about God, about Jesus that God says about Him. He is the Son of God. We believe that. And we're trusting in that. And in His shed blood. But we also then confess our sins. It's an easy thing to seek to rationalize and justify our behavior. What did Adam do? The woman that thou gavest me, 
gave me the fruit and I ate. He blamed the woman and God who gave her to him. It's easy to rationalize. Haven't we as a society today become very much a society of victims? It's genetic. It's our upbringing, our rearing. It's our environment. It's our peer group. But if I do what God wants me to do, it's me. I say about my conduct the same thing God says. It is sin. I don't find a lot of fault in hearing men lead public prayer and talk about mistakes. I know what they mean. But it's more than just a mistake. It's a coming short of the glory of God, of His expectation for us. It is a going beyond that which we ever had the right to do. It's sin. You can hear the hiss of the old serpent in it, can't you? It's sin. Now I've got to say that and acknowledge that. But some people won't do that. Some people are bound and determined to die and be lost in a devil's hell before ever acknowledging that they sin. That's a tragedy. And senseless. You could call it pride or whatever it might be. But there are some, even in the Lord's church, who are unwilling to say, Yes, I have sinned. But if I don't make that confession now, if I don't make it on time side of eternity, I will make it. Doesn't Paul say in Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Romans 14 and 11 says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself unto God. I'm going to look at God and at that throne and I'm going to... Talk about what I've done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 So then every one of us will be judged according to the things that he's done in the body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now if Paul had said every one of us will give account of each other, I might have liked that better. Let, let me give an account for Tony. Let me, let me talk about Tony's sins. He doesn't have many. But let me talk about his. Let me talk about Paul's. You see, it's easy to see the faults and the shortcomings in others, isn't it? It's a lot harder to see them in ourselves. But they're there. And this book shows them to us. James describes it as looking into a mirror. In James chapter 1. We see ourselves as we really are in the sight of God as revealed in this book. Whether I do that now or later, I'm going to make a confession of Jesus and of my life. But it will be of no avail if I wait till the day of judgment to do all of that confessing. 
only way he can help me go to heaven is if I do it now. I take this book and look at what God has said about me and my life, about the Lord, and I accept all of that, trust that, and I make that confession. In the third place, we're going to give an account of ourselves. There are people in this world who do not want to be accountable for themselves. They fail in their relationships. They fail in their jobs because they do not want to be accountable. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, you have the record of a man and his wife who were called upon to give an account of themselves. And that shows us then that in the church we are accountable to one another, to those who have the oversight of us. You remember that in the latter part of Acts 4, Barnabas had taken some land that he owned and sold it and brought the price of that and laid it at the apostles' feet to be used in the benevolent work of the church. Ananias and Sapphira noticed what he did and perhaps others and so they went and sold a piece of land and brought a portion of the money they received for the sale of that land and gave it to the apostles, laid it at the apostles' feet, gave it to the church, but they pretended that it was the whole amount. I think it's interesting that the inspired historian Luke, the Holy Spirit, did not guide him to tell us how much of what they received they gave. 10%? 90%? How much did they keep for themselves? I don't know. The problem wasn't in the proportion they gave and the proportion they kept for themselves. The problem was in their hypocrisy and their deceit. They pretended that what they gave was all of the amount they received from the sale of that property when it was only part of it. And Peter called on Ananias first to give an account. Did you sell this for so much? And he said, yes. Continued the lie. Wouldn't it have been so much better if right then he had said, you know, I didn't. And been honest about it and confessed. But he didn't. And he died. They took him out to bury him. And while they were out burying him, his wife came in. Sapphira was asked, did you sell for so much? And she said, yes. And Peter said, the feet of the men that buried your husband are coming for you. And she died. They were called on to give account of their lives. And they did. All of us will give account, Romans 14, 11, and give account of ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is encouraging those brethren there not to let the world seduce them back into their lifestyle. He said, they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right. And then he says in verse 5, who shall give account unto him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead at his appearing? Everybody is going to give an account to God. Folks, that is one of the most sobering thoughts that enters my mind. One day, I will stand before the throne of God. I don't know how that's going to be. I don't know... How many other people will be around? I don't know how that is going to unfold. But I, it will be as though I'm the only one there as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to give account of myself. 
doesn't matter what anybody else is doing or has done. I'm going to give account of myself. You remember in John chapter 21 after Jesus had been raised from the dead and Peter and others had gone back to their business of fishing. Peter came, Jesus came walking along the shore and they were out fishing. He told them to cast their nets out and they caught a net full of fish. Then they came to shore. Peter, you know, jumped in first when he realized it was the Lord. There are a lot of questions about some of the events of that, but what I want you to think about here is the fact that three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Maybe it was because Peter had denied him three times. Jesus is now giving him the opportunity to express his love three times. I don't know if that's right or not. Perhaps it is. But the point is he asked him three times, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? That exasperated Peter. He said, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. And then Peter saw that disciple who had reclined on the Lord's breast in the upper room the night that he was betrayed. We, we think it may have been John. But he saw him, whoever he was. And he said, Lord, what about that man? What about that disciple? And I like what the Lord said. He said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? The Lord had told Peter what he wanted him to do. What difference did it make what he wanted John to do if it was John? You see, the Lord has told me what he wants me to do. That ought to be sufficient for me without worrying about what he's told anybody else. Of course, he's told everybody to do the same thing. But I need to take care of myself because I'm going to give account of myself. I'm going to stand before that throne and I'm going to give account of my life to God. Ecclesiastes 11 and 9, he said, O rejoice, O young man, in the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart. Let thine heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes, but know thou that for all of this, God will bring you into judgment. And then in the last part of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 14, he says, God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. Those good things you did today, maybe a visit you made to somebody who's sick and shut in, maybe an invitation you extended to somebody who's not a Christian to come to this gospel meeting that nobody else knows about except those people you visited or to whom you spoke. God knows you did that. When he calls on you to give account of your life, he'll have a record of that. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 6 and verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love that you do show toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God knows what we're doing, folks. Whether anybody ever acknowledges it or not, the Lord knows what we're doing, and that ought to be sufficient. But he also knows every sin we commit every evil thought that we have, everything about us. Matthew 12 and verse 36, he said, that every idle word that men speak, they will give account thereof in the day of judgment. How many idle words have I spoken today? I'm going to give account of every one of them because God has a record. God keeps that record of my life. Isn't that amazing? and of your life, of every person alive on the earth tonight. 
He knows what every one of us are doing every minute of every day. That's why He can bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. I'm going to give an account. How much better it is for me to recognize that now and live my life in a way that will meet with the approval of God rather than wait to the day of judgment and then give an account of all those things. Be accountable. Don't resent someone asking you what you've done. God is going to one day. If we're doing what's right and we want to do what's right, why would it bother us for somebody to ask? One last thing for you to think about, and that's to submit. Oh, people have trouble submitting. Jails are full of people who don't want to submit. As I mentioned, I do a class at Smith County Jail on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. I probably won't be able to do the one tomorrow. But it's interesting to listen to some of the comments of those inmates there. To listen to how they interact with some of the prisoners, I mean some of the correctional officers there. And one of the problems is some of them do not want to submit. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. When I was a boy and went to school, my daddy told me, Son, you get a whipping at school, you're going to get one when you get home. I got two whippings some days. I did. And there's a whole lot I didn't do for fear of what would happen to me when I got home. Think about people today who are rearing children to believe, You get a whipping at school, son, I'm going to whip the teacher. If my daddy had told me that, I think I might have got a whipping every day just to see what would happen to that teacher. But you raise somebody like that to have no respect for authority and then turn them loose on society, and what are they going to do? They don't have any respect for authority. They will not submit. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, yes. James said we're to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. Peter, in describing the work of the elders as he exhorted them, he also was an elder. 1 Peter chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Down along about verse 5 he would say, You younger, submit yourselves unto the elders. And their elders may mean the older. But then he goes on and says, Yea, let each of you be subject one to another. And while Ephesians 5.22 does say, Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 21 says, Let each of you be subject or submit yourselves one to another. Submission is hard because it means a suspension of what I want for the sake of what others want. Some in positions of authority to tell me what I ought to do and should do and must do. But nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't intend to submit to anybody. Certainly that's the attitude of some folks, isn't it? But you know what? One day they will. One day we'll submit. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. Jesus said concerning those who had a false hope, I will say to them in that day, Depart, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never did approve of you. Matthew 7, 25 and verse 41, then he would say to those on the left, Depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now think about it. Here's that great judgment scene of God. The world standing before the throne of God and the judge Jesus sitting on the throne. 
the righteous on the right. We give an account of our lives. And when the Lord says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, every single one will come and go in. And when He looks to those on the left and says, Depart, ye workers of iniquity, every single one will depart. The day of judgment is, so far as I can tell, the only day when there will be 100% obedience to the will of God, the Word of God. Come, depart. Everybody in the respective class will do exactly what God says do. I may not do that now. I may refuse to accept the Word of God and submit my life and my heart and soul and do it. I may refuse to accept the delegated authority of civil government, the delegated authority in the home of the father or husband, the delegated authority in the church of the elders, the leadership. I may refuse to submit and let anybody tell me what to do, but on the day of judgment I will submit. And I'll do it. And here's the sobering thing. It will be forever. It'll never change and it'll never end. Whatever condition I'm in when that day dawns, it's the condition in which I'm going to meet the Lord. If I'm saved, I'll go to heaven and live eternally there with God and serve and praise Him with unmeasurable joy and love. But if I'm lost and go into that devil's hell, I'll be there from now on. And it'll never change. I'm not coming out. It's going to last as long as heaven lasts. Folks, there's some things we must do. And we will. We must believe. We may refuse to accept the evidence, believe in the philosophies and theories of men and live thereby, we will believe one day. We may refuse to confess Jesus as Lord and to confess our sins unto God as we commit them and repent of them. But one day we'll confess. We may not want to be accountable. We may want to live our lives as though we don't have to answer to anybody. But one day we're going to give an account. And we may not let anybody tell us what to do. A mother and a daddy, the elders, civil authority, nobody. But one day, we'll listen to the Lord tell us where to go, and we'll do it. How much better to have tender and receptive hearts, to believe in Christ, to confess our faith in Him, to repent as He commands us to do, Acts 17.30, and to be baptized for the remission of our sins. How much better to walk in the light as He is in the light, have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all of our sin, 1 John 1 and verse 7. As we confess our sins, as we commit them and repent of them, how much better to do that now when it will avail to the saving of our soul and put us on the right side and inside of the grace of God. Are you doing those things that you must do? Doing those things that you inevitably will do? Why not do them now the way God wants you to? Out of a heart of love and devotion. 
willingly and gladly. If you need to be baptized, or if you're a child of God and you need the prayers of your brethren for the sins that you've committed, as you demonstrate your repentance in coming, let us pray with you and pray for you. We hope that you will while we stand together and sing.